Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. Now, today I get to introduce you guys to a new guest and a new series where we are talking about the history of the Restoration Movement. Dr. Rick Cherok, who is a professor of history at Ozark Christian College, is interviewed by Daniel McCoy, and they talk a little bit about how the Restoration Movement began. It's going to be a really insightful discussion, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I'm here with Dr. Rick Cherok, and uh, he's going to talk with us about how the Restoration Movement got started. So what is the Restoration Movement, and how did it get started? Well, the, the Restoration Movement is a kind of a unique movement that started primarily in the early 1800s, but actually has roots that reach far beyond that, far previous to that. This is a movement that had its origin on the American frontier. It's a movement that, that looks at the ideas of a, a divided Christian world and bringing them back together and uh, trying to bring them back together based upon the principles of, of biblical Christianity. Now, uh, in this movement, it's kind of, a, kind of an interesting set of ideas when you, you start to think about unity of Christianity, based upon the New Testament principles. And, and the problem that emerges is you got a, a kind of a struggle there because you have some who say, you know, if we're going to restore New Testament biblical Christianity, then, you know, here's the right way. And if you disagree with us, you're wrong. You know, and then you got others who say, well, we want unity. We're going to, we're willing to unite upon anything. So believe whatever you want. And so you got one group that, you know, unite on anything. And another group says, no, we got to have everything the way I say it is. But the key idea of the restoration movement, as I have studied it and researched, it is not so much this issue of who has everything right and shall we unite upon anything and everything, but it's winning the world to Christ. And these are principles or ideas that lead to that. I mean, they were concerned about Christian unity because they had an ever-dividing Christianity. I mean, it just seems like the world was dividing more and more. The Christian world was dividing more and more. I mean, one of the early leaders, Thomas Campbell, was a old light, anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian, Protestant. And he began to question, why are we dividing like this? Can't we come together as, as the, the body of Christ? Uh, with this, he said, the principles we need to follow are the principles of biblical Christianity. He fully understood that you're not going to have everybody in total agreement on every little issue, but he said, there's got to be essential aspects of biblical Christianity that we can all say, yeah, we, we, we see this as the essence of Christian ideals and we can unite around that. And you may have a different opinion on one thing or another that maybe isn't vital, but there are certain things that are, are just the vital aspects of biblical Christianity. We must unite up on these biblical ideas for the purpose of winning the world to Christ. It was not about unity, nor was it about restoring New Testament Christianity. These were means to the end mm. of winning the world to Christ. And you had a group that looked at Jesus's prayer in John 17. And they saw this, this prayer where essentially Jesus, you know, just before he's going to be crucified is praying, you know, uh, 
let them be united upon my word, you know, on, on the truth of, of what you have given us, Father, that we may, that the world may know that you have sent me, that I've come for them to bring them salvation. So this movement in the 18th, 1800s really had its, its, again, there may have been background influences, but there certainly were background influences before that, but you're going to have, you're going to have some key leaders, Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell and Thomas Campbell and Walter Scott and a handful of others who come together and kind of rally around this idea of unity and truth to win the world to Christ. So what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that if evangelism, winning the, world, winning the world to Christ, if that's not the goal, then just unity and just truth, it's not going to cut it. Am I right with that? Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, what would happen, what does happen, and what is in some instances happening right now even, you have some that focus so much on unity that anything goes. You, you can believe whatever you want. They essentially become universalists because you believe anything and it's fine. And then on the other side of that coin, you have some that become uh, so dogmatic about this is what we see as the truth. And if you don't believe exactly what we believe, then you're an outside. Yeah. You're not accepted as Christian. This movement said, we want to get back to New Testament truth, the early church model, the church as it was intended to be in the mind and ideas of Christ. But we realize there's going to be differing approaches and differing thoughts. So we're, we, we got to stress the, the key essential elements of truth, and we've got to try to unite around them, allowing for differing people to believe. Different. So there, there are some people out there that would say, we don't like the idea of musical instruments in worship. That's fine. We're not going to force you to use a musical instrument in your worship, but at the same time, don't force us not to. It's, 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 a, it's a matter of opinion. And so these matters of opinion can be had, but these, the, the, there are certain essentials, you know, Jesus is the Christ and, and some things like this that we must unite around as the body of Christ. Use these as, as our, our rallying points. But these are rallying points for a very specific cause, to win the world to Christ. Now, the, it's, it's for evangelism. Yeah, yeah that, make, that makes good sense. As the founders of the Restoration Movement were trying to figure out where Protestantism had taken a wrong turn into fragmentation, why didn't they go back to Roman Catholicism or something where the church was united under one umbrella? What made them go back even further than that what what was what was the goal there yeah. well i mean they wanted to go beyond even the the catholic ideas the, the what they considered the human doctrines or the human developments back to the original ideas of christ as he established it the divine church not the human church depending on who you talk to the roman catholic church began somewhere between four and six hundred i i generally take a little bit later date about six hundred beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, there were parts of it that had developed even before that. They're going to say, we don't want to go back to, you know, I mean, it, honestly, they were even looking at people like saying, you know, Martin Luther, very important person. We like what he did, but we want to go beyond Luther. We're not looking for human leadership. We want to go back 
to the very beginning, back back to what Christ established the church to be. So we're going to go back to the biblical record. We're going to go back to to what the, the Bible tells us the church was, and we're going to try to establish a church. And and you know, I I should take a moment to point out this is not to say that. This has always been done perfectly. In fact, it's been done rather imperfectly many times and, uh, you know, over and over. But they, they had this notion of, of even though we, we may fail and even though we may not do everything exactly perfectly, we want to get back to the biblical ideas, the divine idea of what the church should be established as. So rather than Rather than simply saying, you know, Martin Luther says this, or the Catholic Church says this, or even the apostolic fathers of the church, you know, just a generation away from the apostles, rather than even looking at at some of these individuals, they're saying, back to the book, back to the Bible. Mm -hmm. The biblical precedent is what we want to follow. Now, let's speak into the, let's let's pause and acknowledge the, the cynic. You know, the person who's like, boy, that sounds nice, but it's not going to happen. It's not realistic. Um, we're going to accrue traditions. And even if we say that we're going back, we're still going to be a product of our our time, you know, maybe pointing out the um, um, American roots of, you know, much of the restoration movement. So so maybe speak into that a little bit um, for the person who is like, yeah, it's a great idea, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, in a sense, that person who says it's a great idea and it's, you know, it's never going to happen. In a sense, they're right. Um, in a sense, it never is going to be perfectly accomplished. And, and that's why I think the restoration movement, even in our day, is important that we continue to try to move. I mean, essentially what, what could happen if you don't see this as a continuing, ongoing process is that you just start accumulating more and more and more and more tradition until it gets to a point where the church is totally unrecognizable from what it you know had been before and i and i i i fully understand i think as most people do that yes there is there's a lot of different influence upon what the church is and what the church has has been and you know where the church is going but that's Part of why we have to continually be in this search and in this desire to get back to biblical Christianity, continually seek to, to be what the Lord is calling the church to be and not, not just fall to the idea of, well, you know, we're not going to get there. So it's just, you know, we'll never make it to where it's done and it's completed. And so let's just sail along with everything, you know, out there. Uh, our goal has to be continually trying to reform. In fact, I think you could almost make a case and oh, I don't know, maybe somebody could argue with me a little bit on this, but I think you could almost make a case that one aspect of the history of Christianity is the constant reform of the church. The church has always been in a state of reform, even from the very beginning. I mean, Paul is going into churches in Corinth and saying, hey, Stop this arguing. Stop all the stuff that's going on here. You know, get back to what you're supposed to be. Mm. And mm. you look at the church in the second century, in the third century, and on. I, I mean, even even in the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to have different groups that are splintering off and saying, "This is not what it's supposed to be." Mm. Now, it's easy. It's easy 
you know, looking at that cynical side again, it's easy to look at these groups and decide, decide, well, they're a bunch of heretics. They're just crazy. And maybe some of them are. But the simple fact that you have many of them that were very genuine in their, uh, their heart desire to get back to a true, uh, a true Christian walk, a, a true um, following of Christ, the way that the church would have it be, the way that, well, the way that the early church would have it to be. And, and I mean, there's, yeah, there are some people out there that you can easily slam as heretics, but yet they were, in some instances at least, trying to get back to a true, genuine Christianity. So the churches always, or in my mind, should always be in a state of looking for um, uh, where, where should we reform and how should we reform and, and how can we restore New Testament Christianity. In fact, I think we get into a little bit of a, little bit of a problem um, if we become so smug that we think, okay, we've got it, we're fine, everything's great. Um, in fact, in, in the revelation letters to the Asian churches, I mean, you know, Jesus says to one of those churches, you think you've got it all made. You, you think everything's perfect, but I'm telling you, you're, you're blind and naked and poor and you need help. Um, and I think sometimes the church, even today refuses to realize that fact that, Hey, we, we, we need to seek what God wants the church to be rather than what we want the church to be. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful that, that the impulse behind the restoration movement, um, unity and truth for the sake of the evangelization of the world. We, we see that impulse, even in the new Testament times. When they were like, hey, we're, we're getting off track here. We got it. We got to go back. Um, yeah. Yes. For, for somebody listening um, who maybe is like, okay, I think I've heard of the restoration movement. I think I kind of maybe remember a little bit. Of, what's a, a real nice, um, just kind of broad overview of the story of it um, from the old light seceder, you know, days <laughs> to yeah. now sure. we've got sure. these, you know, the, uh, three, four different branches. Kind of what's a what's a big overview of it for the person who could use a refresh? Uh, just to give a, a kind of a quick uh, summation type of thing, you, you did have a lot of people in Europe who are noticing the church is dividing and again and again and again. And uh, um, uh, as some of them came to America, this by coming to to America, there was kind of a fertile ground for a movement like this because you didn't have an established. Church of England or the Church of Scotland or whatever you you had a a sense of toleration. In fact, I I was just teaching a class this morning and I was talking about how in America, early America, one of the growing ideas that I think defines American religious thought is toleration. We uh, sadly, in some ways, I think that goes to an extreme and gets into some bad territory, but in in other ways, we have we have opened up for uh, opened up religious ideas for exploration in ways that are not here's here's the church of england and you will do as the church of england defines or here's a church of whatever region or area and so you have some of these people like thomas campbell and alexander campbell and even walter scott who immigrate to the united states and as they come here in the early 1800s they're going to find hey that you know 
this is a place for religious expression. And so, for instance, Thomas Campbell had belonged to a group in Ireland that was talking about evangelism. They were, they were very, very concerned about evangelism and working together among the varying denominations there and saying, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's come together for the purpose of evangelism. We don't have to agree on every little idea, but let's come together. Well, he was old light anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian, and, and the Presbyterian church quickly brought him in and said, you will get out of this group or we will suspend your license for preaching and you will no longer be permitted to serve in ministry. So when he comes to America, he realizes, hey, you know, it's not the same here. You, you can do things like this. There is a sense of toleration where there's not a state church. And so he and later his son, Alexander, are, are going to begin to, to see, the, see the American frontier as a place where they can expand their ideas and they can work with other people. Uh, another key figure will be Barton Stone, Barton Warren Stone in Kentucky, largely. And Stone is going to be part of a great revival that takes place there in the early 1800s, this massive uh, camp meeting revival. And he, he sees in this revival, he sees, you know, Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and others preaching. And he says, as, as he looks at this, he's, he, he's, he's taken aback by the fact that, hey, we're, we're all preaching Christ. Mm-hmm. We're not focusing on you know, the minutia of theological uh, dispute. We're, we're, we're preaching Christ to people who don't know him, and we're bringing people to know Christ. And so he becomes very concerned about this idea of, 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 of uh, working with other groups to, to win people to Christ. And so these two groups are going to form and in 1831-32, the two, the Campbell movement, Stone movement, they're going to merge together, and they're going to promote this idea of bringing people to know Jesus as Lord and evangelizing. And they're going to they're, they're play on that, that key ideas that we've been talking about of, you know, let's get back to the biblical New Testament style of Christianity. Yes, there'll be disagreements, but let's focus on the things that really matter. And let's seek unity with those who can, you know, we can work with for the purpose of evangelism. Um, I, I, I mean, I can't stress enough that unity was not in and of itself the goal. I mean, yes, they wanted unity, but they wanted it for a purpose, for evangelism. Restoration was not in and of itself the ultimate goal. That too was for evangelism. The, the goal was evangelism. The goal was to win the world to Christ. And so unity and truth or, or restoration were ideas that led to the end of winning the world to Christ. That was their, their plan to bring people to Christ. Uh, we could teach the New Testament. We could work together with others that may even disagree with us on some things, but we want to share Jesus. And so as this movement picks up steam throughout the 1800s, it becomes the fastest growing religious movement in America. They are going to take off. I mean, not numeric wise, they didn't have more people than some other denominations, especially the Methodists were uh, very large at that time. But uh, they are percentage wise, they're going to go from, you know, zero to 100, you might say, in no time, they're just going to take off, you know, and uh in the early 20th century, 
uh, some issues got in the way. Um, some people began to focus a little bit more on the issue of restoration and the issue of instrumental music. Should we use uh, pianos or organs or other musical instruments? And uh, that's going to cause one division. Uh, a few years later, about 20 years after that, uh, 26, 27, you're going to have an argument as liberalism begins to enter the movement. And the liberals focus largely on this idea of unity. Hey, you know, we can't really trust the Bible, so believe whatever you want. And so, so they focus more on that idea of unity and, and those who hold firmly to a you know, high view of scripture as authoritative and whatever could not accept that. So another division happens. You generally have these three segments of what would be called the American Restoration Movement, the non-instrumental acapella churches of Christ, the Christian churches, churches of Christ are in the kind of the middle group. And then the group that is more liberal would be the disciples of Christ. The liberalism that was a part of the disciples kind of brought about this division. And the, the group that became the Christian churches, churches of Christ, they were not quite as conservative and, you know, quite as, as, as focused on, you know, we've got to, you know, you can't use a piano or something like that. They have the, the Christian churches, churches of Christ have focused more on evangelism and it's shown, I mean, percentage wise, their, their fellowship of churches, even though not enormous has had a huge influence in world missions and continues to have that. Uh, so the, the non-instrumental churches very for, for a long time, they were very focused on, we've got the truth and we're right. And anybody that disagrees, but that, that's not the case today as much. I mean, many. Many of them we can connect with in, in Christian churches, churches, Christ and non-instrumental churches and, and work together. So I don't know if I've covered everything well there. I feel like I've talked to quite a bit. <laughs> that seems like a wonderful overview. Very, very helpful overview. Um, one more question related to, to that last question is, could you maybe speak into the point at which both I'm going to call them extremes. Uh, you, you know what I mean? The, the two kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, the overemphasis on unity versus the overemphasis on truth. At what point did they veer from Angelus? Sure. At what point, you know, was there something that came along that really kind of began to eclipse evangelization? And then that, that started to go more to the, toward the margins. Right. Well, yeah, the, in, in, as I look at it, the, the key figure or the key, not figure, but event would be the American Civil War. Um, the American Civil War impacted uh, not only religion, but every aspect of America. And, and Christianity and religion was certainly a pivotal uh, point of impact for the Civil War. And as you have this northern and southern division, it really is going to divide most of the churches around the country. I mean, yeah, we still have, you know, Southern Baptist churches and Northern Baptist churches. And, and there were many others that we had like that, that were divided. In fact, some of them came back together. So we have United, you know, like the United Presbyterians or other groups like that. They, they've, you know, they divided, but then they came back together later. Um, the restoration movement did not divide 
very quickly. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, on, on their part, on when, when you look at the restoration movement, the fact that they didn't divide during the war, there's a number of factors into that. I mean, number one, we are a non-denominational fellowship. We, we do not have a denominational headquarters that can kind of, you know, concretely say, we are now divided into two groups, you know? So there's, there, how, how do you divide something when you don't have anything really to divide? You know, every church is autonomous and of its own. So it becomes kind of a little bit more complex when you start talking about divisions within this movement, because uh, that, that was another aspect. If I, if I can just veer off for a second, you know, I'll come back to the Civil War issue, but if I can veer off for a second, one of the big aspects of this movement was we see no place where there's a, a denomination that controls each church, but each church controls itself. It's locally autonomous and it governs and controls itself to meet its own needs. It doesn't have to have an archbishop or a pope or some other figure. It focuses upon itself. And so when you have this, this fellowship of all these churches that have no overarching leader mm. to say we're dividing becomes a, a challenging thing. I mean, so you could almost go to some of them and say, okay, well, what, what has changed now that you've divided? Well, nothing really. You've just... You know, there's, there's really not much that you can argue with, but in any event, what did happen after the civil war actually started before the civil war, but it never had much of an influence. You started there. This was a frontier movement of, you know, Appalachian areas, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and moving on West. And there was some in Virginia, different places over, you know, toward the East coast, but, um, Many of these churches that were in the frontier areas began to incorporate musical instruments in the churches. Now, in the South, because of the Civil War, after the war, during Reconstruction and the period that followed, it was very difficult to get musical instruments. In fact, many of the people were striving to survive, you know, let's, let's, you know, how are we going to pay for the very essentials we need for life, let alone say, you know, how can we pay for a piano or an organ or something like that? And in the North, you know, one church in Cincinnati, the Central Christian Church, they decided they're going to build this brand new building and they paid an exorbitant amount. So their minister said, we wanted to rival the cathedrals of Europe. Hmm. And so they build this enormous, beautiful building. They pay, I forget how many thousands and thousands of dollars for a pipe organ that was just this, you know, incredible, incredible thing. And some of the Southern members of the, of the restoration movement wrote in magazines and said, we're down here starving to death and they're putting pipe organs in churches. And at this time, they're one church, basically. I mean, they're one movement still. Yes. One movement still. There's no division really at this time. And to be very fair, they were, they had a point. They mm -hmm. absolutely had a point. What will happen though, is that you're going to have, uh, I, I always tell my classes and I almost shudder to say this here, cause I don't mean it in an insulting way, but I, I, I 
tend to tell my clients is if you've ever heard Aesop's fables and the story of the sour grapes, and, you know, fox comes running along a path and he sees a cluster of grapes and he thinks, oh, they look good. And he tries to get them and he can't. He jumps higher and he can't. He keeps jumping. He can't read up, reach them. And he finally says, ah, they must be sour. I don't want them. Yeah. And in many ways, it almost seems as if the Southern churches said, we can't get, we can't afford, we can't possibly have pipe organ or some of these things. So really it's bad. It's, 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 a, it's an evil thing. It shouldn't happen. And, um, and that, that again, not, not meaning to be insulting in any way, because I know some people might take offense with a statement like that, but it, uh, what, what ultimately is going to develop is there's going to be an argument against using musical instruments. And by the time you get to around 1900, there's a very distinct Southern, generally a Southern movement that is anti-instrumental music and a Northern movement that's very accepting of musical instruments. And in 1906, a religious United States religious census is taken. SND North, Simon Newton Denton North, uh, working for the United States Census Office will contact David Lipscomb, who's the editor of the Southern magazine, The Gospel Advocate, the most important magazine in the Southern churches. And he's basically going to say, look, I, it seems like there's a difference between you guys and some of these others. Is there? And should we list you separately? And Lipscomb will respond, yes, we are not mm-hmm. the same as them. List us mm-hmm. separately. And so that kind of gives a a defining moment when you have a division, non-instrumental churches and their, their argument for not using instruments, the new Testament does not direct us to use it. Um, and even, even the whole idea of interpretation becomes a big deal here because you know, when the, in the colonial times, um, what, what we're going to, you know, develop a constitution and you're going to have the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians, the strict constructionists, the loose constructionists, and the strict constructionists say, unless the constitution says you can do something, you can't. Mm. And that's the strong interpretive idea of the South. Mm. And so as we get to 1900 and they're saying, unless the New Testament tells you, you can have musical instruments, you can't. They're saying there's nowhere in the New Testament says incorporate musical instruments, whereby in the North, there was more of a loose constructionism. Mm. Loose constructionism, the Hamiltonian view was, if the Constitution doesn't prohibit something, then you can go ahead and do it. Mm. And in the North, many people said, well, the Bible doesn't prohibit using musical instruments. There's nowhere it says, you, you know, thou shalt not use a musical instrument. So it's okay. And that became kind of a challenging point there. And so the South will move to that direction of non-instrumental. The North will incorporate instruments. So that'll be the first division. Over and the next several years, did you have a, um, Well, I was just going to say, is, is that, um, just a pause on that, is, is that an indicator of 
of what both sides were kind of fixating on instead of evangelism. Was that, did that? You know, that, yeah, I, I think in a, in a serious way it was. But, but, but keep in mind, at this point in time, the restoration movement was growing dramatically. Mm, okay. You're seeing dramatic growth. And so in their minds, they're saying, hey, we're doing everything right. Things are going well. You know, we're growing. We're aware, you know, we're reaching more and more people. But yeah, this became a distraction. It, it, it became something that turned their attention away from, I, I would say, the, the primary concern of evangelism. So, yeah. yeah, I see. And then, it, and as we move forward, it's going to be about 20 years later. Uh, you, you start to have, in fact, it, again, it starts in the 1800s, late 1800s, but you have the German theological liberal ideas begin to Im impact the American churches. And uh, interestingly enough, the Restoration Movement was, was very isolated from that, but the colleges, were considered, you know, second-rate or even third-rate colleges in, within the Restoration Movement, and they wanted to have a, a more robust reputation. So they took some best and brightest and sent them to, you know, the schools that are being, you know, Harvard's and Yale's and University of Chicago, where they're being influenced by liberal theological liberalism with the idea they weren't trying to expose them to liberalism. They're thinking, you know, give them robust, wow. strong degrees, and then bring them back and they'll help strengthen who we are as colleges and institutions. Mm -hmm. But if these people went to these schools and came back with these liberal ideas, and that's going to influence the churches. Um, there, there's going to be questions, you know, do, do, do we have a high view of scripture, low view of scripture? scripture? Do, we, do we even trust scripture? I mean, you're, you're going to have some that have questions about, you know, do, do we even trust, you know, things like Jesus' virgin birth, or did he rise from the dead, or is the Bible even a divine revelation? But there's even one, one individual that I've seen that said something to the effect, and I'm not quoting it directly, but he said something to the effect of Jesus Christ is a social construct, much like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Mm. So, I mean, when you get to that degree, and, and by the way, disciples are not quite that mm -hmm. liberal to it's it's a moderate liberalism today but it's still a liberalism uh, in some ways but um in any event as this liberalism influences the church um one of the issues is going to be open membership and most churches in the restoration movement have focused on the idea of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And they've seen this as a New Testament principle, and they've pushed the idea. This has been kind of a, a hallmark notion within the Restoration, but as we are uh, a people of, of baptism, we, we believe in the immersion of sinners for forgiveness of sin, gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life. And so you start having churches that start saying, yeah, we, we don't, we don't accept that anymore. We're, we're going to open membership, allow anybody that wants to just come in to come on in. It starts to happen on the mission fields. The mission fields in many instances become more concerned about social needs than evangelistic needs. And so you're going to have a, in 1926, here you're going to have a missionary in uh, the Philippines, Leslie Wolf, who are the disciples who are the more liberal group 
ultimately controlling the missionary societies say, we're going to cut off your funding unless you accept the ideas that we're putting forward. And his funding will be cut. It's going to be the Christian Standard and some other groups that support him and keep him on the mission field, but they're going to bring him to the national convention in Memphis, Tennessee. And at this national convention, the hope is he'll express his ideas and the population of the movement will say, Hey, we, this is not what we believe, but instead they gave him just a couple of minutes and then they kind of made fun of him and a group at that point withdraw from the disciples and they begin the North American Christian convention, which will start in 1927. And this North American Christian convention group will eventually become what today is often referred to as the Christian churches, churches of Christ. Now it's going to be a long time, you know, um, the actually, the actual separation date is until like 1971. Mm. I mean, they're going to go through this whole period and in the, a listing, a United States listing of denominations in 1971, they will be listed separately from the disciples of Christ. Mm. And it largely had to deal with, uh, issues focusing on the chaplaincy for the military yeah. and how you couldn't get into the chaplaincy. But uh, I probably went into more detail than you wanted here, but there's a lot more that we could talk about with that. But it, it, uh, it was quite a, uh, a series of steps. And, and if I can just say a couple more things here real quick, the, the, the Christian churches, churches of Christ, churches of Christ, want to maintain that high view of Scripture, uh, but they also want to say, you know, we're we're open to connecting on things where we may not agree with. We don't have the, you know, you have to follow every item in our checklist, or you cannot fellowship with us. Um, so I mean, it's a, it's a. It, You've got the disciples who focus on, on the whole idea of unity and unity is primary in their thought. It's very important. And I think it's important in Christianity, but they, that becomes their central focus. For a long time, the non-instrumental church is focused only on, you know, the restoration of New Testament Christianity. We're, you know, we are the right ones. Today they're, they've, they've connected a little bit more often with the, the Christian churches, churches of Christ. And the idea of the Christian churches, churches of Christ is not either of these two ideas as pivotal, but the idea of reaching the world to Christ. Very have, we, have we done it perfect? No, but that's part of that restoration mindset of we've got to continually keep working toward it, keep, keep working toward the goal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for tuning in to the Real Life Theology Podcast. I hope you found this discussion interesting, and I hope you'll come back next week as we talk about the story of Alexander Campbell. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the Restoration Movement, check out the book we got in the description, The Fool of God. And I hope to see you guys this April, April 28th and 29th, in Indianapolis for the Renew.org National Gathering Courageous Renewal. 
It's going to be a great time. Hope to see you guys there.